This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional help. If you or someone you know is facing difficulties, I advise you consult a psychologist. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Psych for Life with Dr. Amanda Ferguson. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Ferguson. Today, I'll be discussing compelling new guidelines for our happiness and the survival of our species, why staying physically connected is crucial, with cognitive neuroscientist Professor Mark Williams. Today, I welcome back Professor Mark Williams to tell us about his fascinating and groundbreaking new book entitled The Connected Species, How the Evolution of the Human Brain Can Save the World, published and distributed by Soman and Littlefield in 2023. Mark is an internationally recognised professor and speaker who has worked at top universities in Australia and overseas. His experience and accomplishments are extensive. Mark is currently focusing on making cognitive neuroscience accessible to the general public, and his important new book does exactly that. I've just started dipping into your new book. It's such a fascinating read. I'd planned to just skim read so you could tell us all about it, but I couldn't put it down. It's an in-depth, inspiring and essential guide for our times, taking such a holistic or multidisciplinary approach from social cognitive neuroscience, psychological and anthropological perspectives. We go on a journey from primitive times when we first cooperated within family groups and later across other groups to the current impact of modern technologies on us and the world. You show how we evolved to this current tumultuous world situation and that actually settled my mind. It makes sense. And then you show us a way forward. You explain how our superior ability to connect led to our success as a species and yet also to our current divisiveness and why we must return to this physical connectivity and be more inclusive. So I feel like we've finally got a guidebook while our world seems to be spinning out of control. Thank you, Amanda. That was an amazing introduction. Um, yeah, I'm I, I, I'm very happy with the book. I was lucky enough that I've had um, a, a lot of colleagues in a lot of different areas and I've always been very interested in talking and working and collaborating with people. So um, whenever I'm thinking about uh, research or thinking about us as humans, it's always come from many, many different dimensions. So I tried to put a lot of that into the book and Look hopefully it came through. That it does come through. It shows so well and it's the depth of your thinking that we have the benefit of. I felt like I was um, eavesdropping in on some of your lectures. It's intense information. I mean, it's it's such in-depth and detailed information, and yet it's so easy to read. <laughs> I feel like you're chatting to me. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, I've always found it annoying when, um, especially academics, spend too much time using big words that I doubt they understand, let alone anyone else. I think it's really important. I think it shows a real understanding of a topic if you're able to explain it to anybody. Yeah. Um, and I love, I, I do neuroscience for kindy kids because I love working with younger kids. So, you know, explaining neuroscience to a age six, age five-year-old um, all the way through to an adult, I think it's really important to be able to do that as an academic or as, as a person who's who's out there trying to you know, teach anybody um, and everybody. And I think it's really important to be able to, 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 to put it in terms that everyone can understand. Oh, and I felt that reading the book that anyone who's interested mm -hmm. in the world we live in now 
you know, from a school-aged person to an academic themselves, um, it's for everyone. Yeah, I hope so. I really do because I think it's important for everybody. I think, you know, we, we are at a stage now where we're making big decisions about where we're going to head as a species and I think we need to understand where we've come from and why we're where we are and yeah. what we want out of our futures and I think we all need to decide that. I don't think we should leave it up to big multinational companies. Um, I think we should be deciding where we're going and how we're going to go. Um, and so that's that's really why I wrote the book. I could see that there was a big big changes happening yeah. and, and I want us to be really cognizant of those changes and what we want out of life. Well, you give us the, the tools with the book to take charge, be more proactive, take responsibility, individuals collectively. Hopefully the book will be used collectively in institutions as well. And you take us on this fascinating journey, uh, the evolution of the brain. Um, my goodness, uh, we gain the wealth and depth of your scientific knowledge, but it's so entertaining at the same time. <laughs> and all these years of your research, um, I really did find that, you know, being reminded of how far we've evolved in the animal kingdom was was heartening, you know, to, to look back, not just focus on the chaos we have right now, but my goodness, as a species, we've evolved tremendously and done such an amazing job of evolving that that kind of makes me a bit more hopeful for the future as well, that if we've come this far, <laughs> we can get through the current time we've got and, and so that we can make the best of our current time for the future. Yeah, I think we we are an amazing species. I think the fact that we've got to where we are, but I think we also need to realise that it, it's not individuals who have got us to this point. We have got here because we collaborate, because we're connected, because we all specialise in different areas and because we all work together to get to this point. And we need to continue to do that. We need to continue to connect. We need, need to continue to be part of this big, beautiful you know, world that we are part of and mm. so that we can go on. But we, we have, we've made huge advances, technological advances um, that have changed our world and we need to use that knowledge and use that ability to change it even more in a positive way. Whereas, you know, at the moment we're, as I said, we're, we're at a cusp. I think we're at mm. this point where we've got to make some decisions and I think we can do it if we want to. Um, and... Mars isn't the answer. <laughs> we, we, we're not going to all fly no. to Mars and get away from here. I mean, the environment there is far worse than what oh, it is yes. here, so why would you? Um, and, and we don't have to destroy this world. We can make it into a beautiful place. It is a beautiful place. It still is. It sure is. I think where we live is an amazing place, mm. and I think most places in the world are amazing, and most people are amazing, and yep. I think if we, if we reconnect, we can really do some amazing things. Yeah, if we really reconnect as a species and we really put down our phones and really um, decide to unite and not let technology run us. It was really a good reminder that, again, as part of our evolution, as you say, we've, we've been able, we are able to choose as individuals how we specialise. Um, I think that's something that we take for granted and a lot of our current life and the benefits that we have we take for granted and to be reminded that every human really certainly in the developed worlds gets to choose what they want to do with their life because as you say we have such collaborations we have massive in-group 
of collaboration where we don't have to make our own bread, as you say. You know, the coffee we were just talking about, which we share a love of. I think that's one of the amazing things about us as a species, and I think it's not one that's recognised enough, but we, we do specialise and we decide what we're going to specialise in, and that doesn't happen in any other species. Mm. All the other species, uh, either there's not that sort of specialisation or if there is, it's predetermined. So it's determined by genetics or it's determined by the need in that small group or that society. So we, as a connected species, do get to choose what we're going to... And we can even generate our own. You know, I've just started my own business. Um, and so I decided I wanted to generate this new thing, <laughs> which I did, and, and now I'm part of that, and that's where I work. And so we do all decide what we want to specialise in. Schooling, of course, helps us and enables us to do that. Um, but I think that's a really wonderful thing about being in the connected species is that we get to choose what we want to do. But that does mean that we've all got to support each other. And so that's the, the flip side of it. And I think that's one of the things that is missing in our society is we're not supporting everybody the mm -hmm. way we should be. A lot of multinational companies now are paying, you know, ridiculously small amounts to people or people are being forced into contracts which aren't viable, you know, and they can't survive. So we need to have a think about that too. We need to realise that people shouldn't be earning billions and billions of dollars while their employees are, can't put bread on the table or, you know, have to work ridiculous hours or are dying at the, at the, in their work um, because they have to work these, you know, crazy, crazy hours. So we, we need to have a think about that and mm. we need to support everybody because everyone is contributing to us as a species yeah. and to what we're actually doing and, and will contribute in the future, but we need to support them. That's right, because <coughs> you make a good point in the book that uh, we have this unconscious drive for connection, which has caused our success, but also distress like that, that you just mentioned, where there's this divide and this um, grouping. You talk a lot about in-group and out-groups and, and even that division there where we should be in-groups. That should be an in-group mm. of worker and owner mm. in the organisation. Yeah, we, we need to realise that we, we're all working towards the same positive outcomes as, as a species and so we, we should be rewarding everyone within that. But there is this big divide now in some companies, not all companies, mm. I mean, there are some wonderful companies out there, honeybee companies that are looking after everybody and treat everybody well. Um, but there are some companies that are the opposite. Um, they call it the locust organisations, uh, which are all about profits and are all about those in the more senior positions earning huge amounts of money and everybody else suffering or CEOs earning huge amounts of money. And it's, it's, I don't think that's right. I think we should be thinking about how we want to be as a society and I think as a society we have evolved to be connected um, and to collaborate. Yeah. Um, and so therefore everybody should be benefiting from that, not just you know, certain individuals. And especially when you see things like the, what was it, during the pandemic, we had the top 1% of people tripled their wealth, whereas at the bottom 50% halved their wealth. I mean, that's disgusting to yes. happen during a pandemic yeah. where everybody was suffering. Um, how did those people make that much money? And why is it that the, the bottom 50% lost so much money? Um, so, yeah, we need to be thinking about that. Governments are supposed to be working for all of us. Governments mm -hmm. are supposed to be there for the people, not for these multinational companies. So we need to consider what our governments are doing, why they're doing what they're doing, why they're making the decisions they're making, why they're not making decisions which are 
you know, benefiting everybody rather than individuals or group, small groups. So, uh, and I think that would help a lot. I think governments have more responsibility to take. And I guess it's people like um, your readers who are going to be pushing back on governments as they um, get inspired by your book, I'm oh, sure. I hope so. I do hope so. Well, yeah. I, I hear from you that this is the reason you wrote it, to inspire people. And, you know, I found it fascinating and inspiring. I can't wait to have a proper deep dive into it um, and really think through what you're saying because even just my brief superficial read was so riveting I couldn't put it down. <laughs> yeah, I, I wrote it because I, I want people to think um, and I think education is, is really, really valuable and so I'm hoping people will read it and people will start pushing back. People will start making decisions rather than following um, because we, we need to, as, as a species, start making some serious decisions about where we're headed. We do, and this book gives people the, the tool to do that. And you talk about so many things in the book that are colourful as well. You've got these wonderful case studies or stories and vignettes and oh, the structure of the book, such an easy read, and it's, it's so helpful. I mean, you... you you put the tools in our hands by putting the tips at the end of each chapter, by putting a summary at the end of each chapter and, and steering us through this incredibly interesting, packed full of information book while entertaining us at the same time. You talk about a comparison of the neural connections in our brains and the social connections in the world and that even slight damage in neural pathways can damage the whole brain. So too, these, these kind of... I guess you're talking about now these social connections, even during the pandemic, that it's damaging for us to hear that so many people at the top got so wealthy during the pandemic. It damages our social feeling of social connectivity, doesn't it? It does. It really, it really does. And I don't think people realise how much it affects us when we hear things like that or when we realise that we're all suffering the way we are, but then there are these people who have this extreme wealth that don't really... I mean, there's no reason for somebody to earn those sorts of exorbitant amounts of mm. money um, when majority of people who work for them yeah. aren't earning those sorts of amounts of money. And there's easy ways to restrict that. I mean, we could simply say that yeah, the, a senior or an executive can't earn more than six times the average salary. Yeah. I mean, that seems quite reasonable to me yeah. um, and I think reasonable to most people. And if we did that, then the, the senior executives would actually want everybody to be earning more so that they can earn more. So even in a selfish yes. way, they end up benefiting everybody um, and that should be worldwide. Uh, mm. But, it, yeah, and, and that would be a fairly easy thing for a government to actually set in stone. Uh, why they don't, I guessing it's got to do with money in itself but yeah. yeah i mean things like that could be could be done to change the way society's set up mm -hmm. and make it more fair more equitable for everybody which it should be yeah i was shocked to read the majority of our brain is used for socializing oh my goodness yeah, absolutely. We are social animals. Our yeah. brains have actually evolved to socialise. And socialising is the most complex thing we do yeah. every day. It's more complex than anything else. I mean, people seem to think that coding is something that, you know, is difficult to do. It's not. It's really, really simple. I can code in six different languages. Um, it's not complex. Sitting down and actually chatting with someone yeah. is extremely complex. And there's a lot of our brains are dedicated to it, which are all unconscious, so we don't yeah. actually have access to. So it's making decisions and responsibilities 
responding and yeah. physiological responses, heart racing and all those sorts of things, it, it's all automatic that we're not actually in control of yeah. um, and we need to be aware of that. When Most people aren't aware of that. But, yeah, more, more of our brain is dedicated to socialising than anything else because that's what we do. Mm. That's who we are. That's how we've got to where we are. You know, we, we need that. There's safety in numbers. There's safety in our group. Yeah. There's, you know... Possible danger outside of our group, so we need mm. to respond to that. But just talking to someone, you've got language which is really, really complex and yeah. really difficult for our brains to actually communicate in that way. Mm. But then you've also got your know, facial expression perception, you've got face perception, we've got eye gaze detection mm. to know what someone's talking about when they're doing it. You've got the body language mm. and how people are actually responding to you, and then you have the pheromones that are given yeah. off by the other person, and then we have touch, which yeah. is really important. Yeah, whole gamut of things that we get from being with someone and a whole gamut of neurotransmitters that go swirling around our brains when we're doing it, which actually make us more positive and make us happier and, yeah. and create enjoyment in our brains and in our bodies um, from this social interaction, which is so important for us. So important. And, you know, we've got to remember we are social beings, as you say, and faces and face expressions was your PhD area. And we orientate ourselves to faces before we even know they're there. Please explain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I, that was part of my PhD and it was quite controversial at the time. But we do. So, so if you present a whole bunch of objects or a really complex scene to someone, they'll orient to the face automatically. So it's an automatic orientation mm. that we have which directs us to there. So there's only there's four things that we orient to. Three of them we used to know about, which is just sound, colour and and uh, movement, so sound, color, and movement attract our attention for good reasons, right? From an evolutionary point of view, those make sense, and they're all low level, so they're things that are easy to process. But yeah, I, I've showed that faces also mm. attract our attention um, and cause us to orient to them straight away. They're complex stimuli, so it shouldn't have, um, and they had to rewrite the books on attention because of that. Um, but we do, we orient to faces, and the actual fact we process faces without being aware of them. So wow. we process them the outside of our awareness because they're so important to us. Yeah. Because faces are what identify somebody. Yeah. So they tell us if they're friend, friend or foe. Yes. They tell us if they're happy or sad or angry. Or they tell us where they're attending. They tell us so much about the person. So they're so important to us as in as as a social species. Yeah, and <clears> we do that in the same way. It's automated as we breathe and swallow, as you say. Oh my goodness, when we don't even know we're doing it. <laughs> And this, this concept of in-groups and out-groups awareness, as you say, the trendy word at the moment is tribalism, that we're, we're checking out those faces to, to work out whether it's you're in my group or you're in my out-group, you're not in my group, mm -hmm. so am I safe or not, I guess, as well. And, and you mentioned how uh, the worst thing you can do to a person, because we're so socially connected, is actually put them in solitary confinement, which is the worst that we do for the worst prisoners. So again, the, the being in group is is so critical to us for so many reasons, as you point out, and so many levels. Yeah, 
solitary confinement is, I mean, it's an awful punishment because of the fact that it goes against our, our nature, our core nature, who we are as individuals. Mm. We, we need to be around people and we need to be around people who we trust mm. so that we feel safe. And so putting someone in solitary confinement really does stress them out. And we know that being alone or even just being lonely mm. results in earlier death and not being lonely. I mean, it causes really, really horrendous things to yeah. happen to your brain but also to your body. Um, so, yeah, loneliness drives us to sadness, which then drives us to, to die earlier. Yeah. But just, yeah, solitary confinement does the same. And we know that even during the lockdowns during mm. COVID, it was very similar to being in solitary confinement. The, the results are fairly awful mm. <laughs> with, you know, a huge increase in mental health issues mm. and, as you would know, I'm sure, yep. um, suicide and so on related to those those lockdowns, which wasn't great. Um, and now we need to get back out and we need to actually socialise with each mm. other. Um, I, I I hate the term of the new normal because I don't think it's normal at all. We no. need to actually be in with people. Yeah. We need to socialise with people. I mean, I think it's great that people now have hybrid situations for work, but there needs to be that socialisation as well. We need to make sure and workplaces need to make sure that people are socialising in work and in even though they are able to spend time at home, they need to also go into work and actually spend time with people. Because we're social beings and if we lose those social skills, we lose the soft skills, we are doing something detrimental to our own careers and lives. Absolutely, yeah. And we know that the, all those connections and everything else, it, it benefits both productivity but also it benefits you in your social standing in the organisation. Mm. So you're more likely to get promotions, you're more likely to get that you know, interesting project or whatever it happens to be because you're there and you're actually interacting with people and you're more likely to be on their mind, so therefore yep. more likely to get promoted and so on. And keep yourself employable by keeping out there and being able to socialise in the workplace. Yeah, because to get a job these days, you still need to have an interview. <laughs> and so you still need to be able to talk to somebody yes. and look them in the eye and have a serious conversation with them. Yes. So, yeah. And most employers I talk to, because I, as an org psych, I work with employers as well, lament that they require the staff to be in, but they can't command them to be in the mm. office, but they prefer, most of them, to have their staff back in the office. So I love the refresher you give us. For those who don't know about our evolution, you talk very much about evolutionary theory and how we arrived at this stage of our evolution. Um, and you, you refer to social psychology and Adler and the therapist-client connection um, as a, another example of, of our connectedness and the way we connect. You refer to linguistics and existentialism even. I mean, I'd say anyone who has any interest in anything to do with humanity <laughs> will love your book because there's something in it for everyone. Thank you. <laughs> and this drive to connect, to socialise, we... You, you say the research now shows that we were doing that well before humans stood up. Yeah, so we know that we evolved from something that was ape-like and we separated from the chimpanzees, but we also separated from the, the monkeys much, much earlier than that. And this is this is millions, millions of years ago, well before we even started to stand up. And so we have been socialising probably even longer than that because mm. other social animals that we're related to, such as mammals and so on, such as um, dogs and cats and all these things are also, well, many of them are social cats aren't, sorry, but dogs are. <laughs> Um, a social as well. So, yeah, we, we, we probably have been in these social groups for millions of years, um, but we've only 
really had language, like sophisticated language for a couple of hundred thousand years. And yet we, we use that mainly in most of our conversations without realising that there's all this other stuff going on in our brains yeah. when we're socialising that are such important aspects yeah. to that socialisation. That's it. And, and you offer an example of your work, that some of the work you do at the moment, which is in schools of, of um, reading the, the kids as you, and the and the teachers as you walk onto a school campus rather than even before you rather speak to them. You're reading the body language and you gain so much information as we do when we present. We read a room mm-hmm. and the audience before we present so we can pitch it in the right way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's why it's so hard doing webinars and things like mm. that because you don't get that feedback yeah. that you get when you're actually presenting. You can feel whether or not the room's getting what you're saying or mm. not getting what you're saying, or you can if you're a good presenter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so you can actually read all those signs and you can read the facial expressions. And, and we can read, you know, hundreds of facial expressions all at once yes. um, just through this social mechanism that we have. Um, so we can read those sort of uh, things and it's really important for us to be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, you can walk into a supermarket and just read you know, is that a safe situation or has something happened mm. with all those people in the supermarket? Yeah, you can. I, I remember recently I walked into a supermarket and I, I, I got a weird feeling and then I ran into someone I knew and they said, oh, yeah, the alarms went off like 15 minutes earlier and everyone got charged because there was problems with the electricity and mm. stuff and everyone. And, and you, you could feel it, right? Mm. Everyone was still feeling nervous about yep. it and nobody said anything to me, but you could feel there was something a bit odd going on. And yeah. it was just the body language and the facial expressions and all those things that we, we read really automatically. We're doing it all the time, every day. We are. Yes, and staying connected socially, physically means those skills are, are still being used and we're not having them atrophy, which is so important. Then you, you take us on to tool making and, and uh, you know, we forget, we take for granted that we have all these tools as humans. We have our laptops. But, you know, we started with, with um, tool makers in society and, we, you know, we looked after them. You know, the hunters went off to hunt for the tribe and the tool makers were then fed. Yes. Yeah, we have for a long time. And this is also, which is another area that I find fascinating, which I don't talk much about in the book, but when we give gifts, it's it's associated with this idea that certain people do certain things and then other people do other things. And so you can imagine many years ago, the hunters would go out and hunt and they would get food and then they would come back and they would give the food to the, to the people who were building the tools, for example, or the people who were caring for their children, for example. And so that that's the start of gift giving. Right, it's actually giving to another person because they're doing something else for you, yes. And that's why we give to loved ones because they've done Mm. stuff for us, we do things for them. And and we got to remember that that came from this early uh, separation of specializing into different areas, and then you would look after each other by giving Mm -hmm. each other things, yeah, in exchange for things that they gave you, which is really important. Again, very ingrained in our heads, Mm. (laughs) our brains have actually evolved to do that, and our brains are very, very good at remembering when people don't do that and when mm. people do do that, which is why we get really upset when someone doesn't give us a present, for example. Or short changes us when we give money for our coffee. Yes, or short changes us or yes. yeah, any of those things. We, we remember them because yeah. it's really important for us as humans because there's this give and take mm. because we specialise in one thing. I specialised in cognitive neuroscience and so hopefully people you know listen to what I have to say and mm. used to come to my lectures and so on and so forth. And 
I use lots of stuff that other people do. You know, I drink water because the people who supply the water bottles and the yeah. water and all the rest of it, and I use a laptop because there's millions of people who contribute mm -hmm. to building that laptop that I use, and we've got to support all those people. Absolutely. And there's our connectedness again. <laughs> we seem to sort of concentrate so much on language, and yet all these other faculties we have, these ancient abilities to, to override problems, and reconnection helps us to do that, reconnecting with people. In all of this um, attention that is unconscious, that we're attending to the environment and to other, each other, we're making lots of decisions, we have a lot of bias that's going on that's helpful to to make us, as you said earlier, feel safe or work out whether we're safe in the social context. If, if we're in an in-group situation, for instance, where we're with like-minded and similar types of people, but then there's also a lot of bias that goes on that, for instance, we recognise faces from outside our group or people who are different from us faster than we recognise faces of similar people to us. So that's, I think I read from a threat, perceived threat reason, but there's no longer really that threat that there used to be, that that's why that developed evolutionarily, that we'd have that ability, but we, we actually don't have the threat anymore of those people that are different from us. Yeah, and I think that's something most of us don't think about, especially in relation to, say, racism or mm. these sorts of evil things that are actually out there. A lot of it actually comes down to our, our brains and the way our brains actually evolved. So we have very limited capacity to attend to much in our environment. So our attention network is, is basically getting us to attend to very specific things. I like to think of it like trying to drink through a, a fire hose. You know, there's a huge amount of water, yeah. but you can only take in a tiny bit of it, and yeah. that's our attention. It's just taking in that little bit, and you're losing everything else. Mm -hmm. And so we can only really attend to a very small amount of information that's out there, and our brain's processing a whole bunch of other stuff. But that's all based on really simple stereotypes about what's out there or these rules that we have in our brains. Mm -hmm. And it's for everything from, you know, colour, really low-level things like colour, to people. And so we need to know when there is somebody out there or we, we needed to know. We don't anymore. We needed to know when there was somebody out there that wasn't from our group, wasn't yeah. from our tribe. They're not part of our family. And if you think about it, for the millions of years, we grew up in these little groups that were just family members. So yeah. they're all our race, right? They're all the same as us. And so our face template has been designed to recognise those people as being okay and they're safe. And ev everything outside of that is not safe yeah. or is potentially dangerous. And so we still have that same mechanism. Mm. And if our face template is still guided by that little group that we see all the time, then we do. We orient to all these other faces that are outside of that group, which is outside of our family, which is outside of our race, yeah. and, and identify them as potentially harmful, potentially dangerous. Now, of course, our brain, our implicit or our automatic brain, part of our brain, is saying there's something out there that could be dangerous. Yeah. But then we need to actually then attend to it and go, no, it's not. It's yeah. okay. Yeah. And I think this is one of the big issues with the idea, there's there's this idea out there that we should trust our emotions. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now that's our emotions responding, yeah. and we shouldn't trust it. No, we should we should recognise it, and then we should react to mm. it in in a positive way. In, in in saying, no, it's okay. That's actually someone who's okay, and yep. it's not something that I need to worry about. Whereas I think there's too much push now that we need to, you know, trust our emotions. We don't need to trust our emotions. Our emotions are there to indicate that there's potential harm, and then we need to work out whether or not it is actually harmful. And in, in our society today, most of the time, it's not harmful vast majority of the time. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I, I see it, you know, as a practising psych, psychologist that emotions is data, it's information, mm. and we've got a conscious mind for a reason that we need to analyse the data. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> and in sort of related, isn't it, that angry male faces, uh, faces that we detect the fastest. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was an interesting study which I did quite a number of years ago and it created quite a fuss at the time. But we, we do orient male faces, angry male faces, much faster than any other face, whether it be female or male. Um, and we think that is because that angry males are more likely to be dangerous oh, than course. anybody yes. else out there in society. Um, yeah. And, and, of course, males are larger and so therefore there's more potential for danger as well. So we do uh, orient uh, angry males faster. Of course, if you put those two things together, so we orient to angry males faster and we also orient to people who aren't in our race faster yeah. um, and we also don't uh, remember or recognise individuals who aren't part of our race as easily, you can imagine how things can get pretty mixed up in multicultural societies where you've mm. got different races mixing and you're orienting to the angry males or the males mm. yeah, from different races but not from your own race quicker and then you don't recognise them very well and you won't remember them as well and it can cause a lot of issues that I think we're seeing in a lot of societies these days. Yeah. And again, I think we take for granted how complicated we are and how socially attuned we are as humans yeah we're always trying to work out who's part of our in-group and who's not part of our in-group yeah. but we have all these mechanisms going on all these automatic mechanisms which are based on these really old systems mm. which we don't need anymore but they're actually controlling a lot of what is actually occurring in our brains yeah. and so we need to be more aware of those and i think we need to train people mm. on how those work and therefore we can override them. Because we can override them. Yeah. We just need to be aware of them and then work on them That's so right. that we're not doing those things. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, I'd, I'd put it like we're, we're constantly getting triggered in society and we have to be um, conscious and have a conscience and let that work for us as well. Yeah, you need to be really aware of your responses, of your mm. because it causes a physiological response, mm. right? And it's the same as a threat response. Well, it is a threat yeah. response in actual fact. It it's is. your amygdala that's responding, mm. which is then setting off your fight or flight response, which then increases your heart rate and does all these things, which are identical or part of the anxiety response as well. So mm. we've got these two things mixing in with each other. Um, and, of course, as you know, anxiety is on the rise uh, especially social anxiety, which is associated with being with people. Mm. Um, and we know that this triggers, you know, these responses. So, yeah, yeah. we could help each other by, oh. by learning how to respond to these things. Absolutely. I mean, this education is so helpful um, and it will be so helpful to people because, you know, as we're in such a tumultuous age and stage of um, humanity, that sort of delicate balance of what you just describing is, you know, yes, there may be a threat and yet 
we haven't been threatened yet. If we're walking past, say, an angry male as a female, um, we're alert, we're vigilant, but there's no need to run. It's it's a kind of delicate balance that you you have the instinct or you you get triggered mm-hmm. at, from the primitive amygdala part of the brain that's being triggered and and it's helpful and it may be helpful, it may be needed at some point, but it's not needed when you're just walking down the street. Yeah, no, absolutely. Or walking into onto a tram or a train mm. or a, a bus or a lecture theatre full of people. Yes, <laughs> yes. So again, educating people, people being aware that why they're being triggered and so they can manage their anxiety better mm-hmm. because it's not their fault that they're being triggered and it's not necessarily even just anxiety, it's something we all have to manage as a, a normal part of us. Yeah, part of the connected species. Yeah. You talk about touch as such an important thing that we were denied in the pandemic and and I guess, you know, all this sort of internet use, we forget about social connectedness is not just about language and vision, you know, body language, but touch as well. It's, it's an important part of being connected. It is. It's really important. But all societies, all human societies, have some form of touch when they greet each other. So more stoic societies like ours, we shake hands. Um, if you're in from Europe, you'll kiss each other on a cheek, one or two cheeks or three cheeks, depending <laughs> on where you come from. Um, even the Inuits and the Maoris, they rub noses to get close and actually touch each other. And all of those cases, you're touching what's called the glabarious skin. So it's the hairy skin. And the hairy skin has C fibres, and those C fibres are just there for touch. Wow. Yeah, so they're for human touch, for, for well, not just human. They're also in primates. But it, it activates areas of our brain, which gives us pleasure and sets off um, or releases oxytocin. And oxytocin is what opens us up and yeah. makes us more willing to connect. accept and connect and mm. do all those things. It also involves in uh, orgasms. So mm. it's got to be a positive thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, it's it's a really important thing. And we know babies, you know, fare better. They, their yes. neurological development is better if they have a lot of touch. They're yep. more settled. They're more likely to sleep. They feed better. All these things through touch, which mm. is why we now put the baby on the mother as soon as they're born so that yeah. they'll actually get all that touch, but they also settle better, both with, you know, I remember when my kids were young, I used to love cuddling, yeah. <laughs> cuddling them because it was so yeah. such an important part of that development. But even as adults, we need to touch more. We need to actually touch each other in an appropriate way, yeah. but we do need to touch each other. Um, and I think it's one thing that is missing from schools now because a lot of schools now are very strict on no touch or restricted touch yeah. and everything, but I think it's really important for kids to touch each mm. other, but also for the, for the teachers in an appropriate way to touch the students as well so they get those connections and so on um yeah of course there's been awful things that have happened that we need to be aware of and we need to control but i think we've gone too far the other way where Mm. we're not touching people and it is it releases these amazing neurotransmitters in our brain that give us connection open us up i mean you know there's research showing that if you touch someone they're more likely to give you money (laughs) (laughs) they're more likely to uh yeah trust you they're more likely to volunteer all these things which are really important well money thing maybe not (laughs) the other things are important and and, yeah i mean if teachers and kids aren't learning this stuff or kids aren't learning this stuff in school then again then they're missing out on some social skills some soft skills and then the loneliness factor as well you know people living on their own it's it's increasing so the lack of touch there as well is is going to be part of 
the changes in society. Yeah, there are a lot of people now who live by themselves and uh, new technologies is allowing us to stay at home and live at home for longer, which is great. But then at the same time, we need to think about are these people isolated? Are they getting enough socialisation? Are they getting Mm. enough touch? Is there people in their lives that they're actually interacting with? Because it's so important for these individuals to get those important interactions and, and, um, yeah, touch and so on. That's it. Yeah, you've compared, I think, fast food with online connecting as well, that it's an instant connect, as fast food is an instant feed, I guess, um, but not good for us as, and I love the phrase you had of, a home cooked meal, which is the real connecting um, comparison. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's. Uh, I really like the association with the two because with uh, fast food, it's an easy thing to do. You go, you you can don't even have to get out of your car. You can get the food. You can eat the food. You get the buzz. You get the dopamine, which gives you because of the sugar gives you the rush. But then you feel sick, <laughs> and it doesn't sustain yeah. you. Yeah, and it's going to make you ill over the long term. Yeah. Home cooked meal, it's it's more work. It takes more time. It is more work, but it it does sustain you over the long period. It makes you feel a lot better, um, and, and it's much healthier for mm. you. But it takes time. Yeah, and it's the same as socialising. If you're doing it online, it's easy. You can just text someone. You can do all that, but it's not sustaining you because all you're getting is dopamine rush and yeah. nothing else. Whereas if you're actually Sit down with someone, have a chat, yep. get to touch them, get to smell pheromones, get mm-hmm. to actually interact with them, see their body language, do all those things. Then you get you know serotonin, you get dopamine, and you get oxytocin, and yeah. all those things are really important for our brains for that connection. Um, and so we need to do that. You don't get any of the same benefits from online connection, whether it's on Zoom or whether or not it's you know on your texting or yep. any of those. Social media, so-called social media apps, mm. um, it's not the same. It's yeah. yeah, really, really is like fast food versus a nice home cooked meal. And similar to fast food, it's sold to us as food, and social media is sold to us as social. Yes, and <laughs> neither really are. No, not at all. And if we're not careful, we're going to lose all the health benefits, physical and mental, emotional, psychological, of socialising. Really physically socialising if we don't physically socialise. And as you say, make the effort to do that because of the health benefits. Mm. And I think Tristan Harris, who's a very famous ex-tech entrepreneur who's trying to make the world of the internet a better place, um, he he talks about the fact that he was at one of these... So he, he was very famously worked at a social network, social media network, um, and he says that he tried to implement a simple little button on the social media network um, where you just press the little button to say, say, I'm in New York this weekend. Is there anybody who wants to meet up? And it would go out to anybody who was also in New York that day, who was one of your connections, uh-huh. so you could actually meet them, which made perfect sense, yeah. right? And he said they, they slammed it and shut it down. He said it's very easy to implement. Yeah. None of the social media companies will implement it because of the fact they don't want you meeting up oh. with people because they want you online. Because yeah. they want your money. They want your money and they want your attention. Mm. They want you looking at the yeah. phone. They don't want you actually meeting someone because then you won't be looking at your phone. Mm. You'll be enjoying yourself. So they're not at all social. No. There's nothing social about them and they won't implement one of the easiest things to implement into the social media apps 
because of the fact that it'll make you more social and therefore yeah. you won't be on the social. And that to me just says it all. That mm. just tells you exactly what these companies are about. And that's about not making us social, making us unsocial yeah. and having us on the devices. Yeah, and disconnected as humanity. Yeah. <laughs> becomes so, more driven apart. Yeah, and the very benefits we gain from the internet and technology are starting to be outweighed by the damage they cause. Yeah, it's it's an amazing new technology that could be used for good, mm. and it's not. I mean, I find it amazing that most people... I mean, this thing, these things have these great memories because everything's out there on the cloud, so mm. it's, it's it can be held for actually days and days and days. But people react to it every time something comes through rather than letting it be held by the cloud. Yep. So therefore you can get on with your daily life. Mm. People react to every message they get, every tweet they get, every d whatever ding-dong they get on the thing. They respond to it straight away. And it's like, but hang on, one of the benefits of this is it's got a good memory. Yes. And so you can use that memory to hold your information for yeah. later and it will be there tomorrow yes. or next week or the week after and you can actually do what you're doing now, which is being in the real world and being social. Yeah. Mm. So we were in charge of making tools a long time ago and now the tools are in charge of us. Yeah, well, I think there's a few tools in charge of those tools that are... <laughs> <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so I think we're, we're starting to talk about solutions now um, and being aware of the automatic in-group bias. I think, you know, that that in itself, if nothing else, I learnt from the book that, that we have this bias of being in our own group and we don't even know it, that we've got that bias, that we prefer our similar or own kind and we feel safer with them which is no longer true it's just that we've got that trigger in the amygdala that tells us we should be with like yes yeah and, and it's there and we need to be aware of it but but it's all come from the fact that for millions of years we've had these tiny little family groups that we've lived in and it's been about identifying who's in that little family group and who's not in that little family group mm. and people who aren't in that family group could be dangerous because back then there was neanderthals around and there was lions around and there was other yeah. types of primates around and all those things that we needed to be aware of but we're not in that situation anymore so we need to be aware that our brain is set up for these little tiny groups not yeah. for these huge multicultural societies and our brains are constantly reacting to mm -hmm. these multicultural societies so we need to respond to that shut that down so that we can actually interact with each other and feel more part of our multicultural society that's right because as you point out beautifully in the book we we might have a small in-group of the suburb we live in the, then the broader region that we live in, the country we live in, but as you're just saying, multicultural kind of areas of the of the planet, and we all actually occupy the planet together. Mm. And we all contribute to this amazing world. I mean, we're, laptops is a great example. I mean, all the bits and pieces in a laptop come from all over the world. Yeah. They're not, it's not something that's just made in your suburb and so we need to appreciate that there's people contributing to that all over the world you know we get stuff from everywhere i just bought yep. an mg which came from you know europe it's not yeah it's not that we survive in this little group anymore we survive no. because we are interconnected and it's amazing because it, it allows us to do what we all want to do yeah. Um, and be who we want to be. Yeah. But, but we need to appreciate that too. That's it. And one of the tips you give is to go into nature. It's so important to put down some of this technology and just 
connect with nature and be therefore better able to manage ourselves as these social beings because awareness of self and resetting ourselves nature does that faster than anything i think it does yeah i mean nature we, we've evolved again we've evolved for millions we've got to remember we've evolved for millions of years and so our brains and our whole sensory system was it's evolved in in nature it hasn't evolved in in houses and in buildings and with cars and all these things they're very very new and last one or two three generations and so our brains haven't had time to catch up and it'll take thousands of years to catch up if it ever does mm. and so we need to get back to where we were and that's nature and we know people feel mentally uh, more able when they're in nature Kids even learn better, you know, when they've been in nature or if they're they're in nature regularly. Yeah. So we need to get back to that because that really does settle us, resets our brain, and allows us to be more cognizant of what's going on around us. Mm. Yeah, definitely a good yeah. thing to do. That's right. I love the recent research on blue space and green space. Mm. Oh yeah, you know. yeah, it's amazing how how it connect. Well, it's not amazing. I think it's. It's fairly logical that we are so connected to the yes. real world, to nature, which is the real world, um, and how important that is to us. Yeah, yeah, if you can look at a body of water or the sky, you get your blue space, and that's best for your mental health. And if not, if you can find trees, grass, something green, mm -hmm. that's second best for your mental health in terms of nature space. So important to download the app for monitoring screen time. I think that's a great tip. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, education is important. And so actually having that information so you can see what you're doing. We're, we're really, really bad at knowing how much time we spend on well, doing anything, right? We, we're we bad at remembering how much we eat. We're bad at remembering all the bad things that we mm. do. So having one of those monitoring apps and then once a week having a look at it and going, do I really need to be spending three or four hours on this or whatever? And also if you look at it and uh, you are spending whatever, five hours a week on blah, yep. work out how much of that is a year or work out how much of that is over your lifetime. And do you really want to be spending that many years yes. <laughs> on on this social media app or whatever it happens to be, yep. um, and then think about how can I how can I start restricting that? How can I actually mm. do other things that I actually want to do? Yes, because you'd never get that time back. No, no, we're only here once. This yep. isn't not a dress rehearsal, as they say. Who was that? That was a great singer. I forget though. It's from song. one of those. What's it from? Anybody know? No. <laughs> <laughs> it is a great a great phrase. Yeah. Uh, regulation of pornography so important. <laughs> yes. Uh, the big problem with pornography and with the internet in general is that there are algorithms running in the background. All of these tech companies run all these different algorithms to ensure that you stay on them for longer. So with pornography, what they do is they bias it towards more extreme pornography. So you can start or a child, can, a teenager can start looking at something which is fairly inane and not really that harmful. But very quickly, it will point them to more and more excessive and more and more dangerous pornography, um, which is going to cause issues. And then, of course, we know that our brains are constantly adapting to our environment, so they'll adapt to those more extreme versions. So they're going to give them more extreme and more extreme, and it's just going to get worse as time goes on. The more time a boy or a teenage, teenage boy or adult male spends on pornography, the more likely they are to be aggressive um, towards women so it's not not a healthy thing to be doing um, and we need to really limit it and we need to think about 
regulation in that respect. Yeah, or we're giving ourselves a future, a future community that we're not going to like. No, no, not at all. And I think that's a little scary. Yeah, very scary. I think, you know, you put it so neatly for us to remember that that Hansel and Gretel story that warns kids the witch is real and to watch out for the witch, that these tech giants, yeah, they give us these amazing technologies, but there's a witch in there as well. There's, there's witchery involved. And as you just sang, the algorithms and the incentive of money and the lack of ethics, there's no ethics or morals from these big techs. They are literally just running a business. Yeah, they're not in the they're not in the business of making our lives better. They're in the business of making money mm. for their investors and for themselves. Um, yep. And so they are going to do whatever it takes to make money until they're regulated. Mm. In which case, they need to actually change things, or they can't continue to do the business. But yep. until that happens, yeah, we need to be aware that they are a big business and they're there to make money. Uh, any big business is there to make money, so we need to to acknowledge that and, and react accordingly. Absolutely. Mark, your book, The Connected Species, is going to inspire so many people. It's such a fascinating read. It's educating us and entertaining us at the same time and focusing us. And It really stilled my mind. It settled my mind from being quite rattled by what's going on at the moment to feeling like, okay, I sort of understand how we got here, what we need to do now you know, pay attention, make some decisions, work together and and design the future. And your book's going to help us to do that. It gives us the tools. It'll inspire parents. Parents are going to want their kids to read it to help in engineering the future and to help us make sense of the way the world's going and how we can take some more charge of it. Thank you so much for writing this book. Oh, thank you very much, Amanda. It's been great. It's been great discussing it with you. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, Amanda. Honestly, I couldn't put the Connected Species book down, and I'll be dipping into it again and again. It's a book to include in your collection of must-reads, such an important book for our times, a riveting read with wise and reassuring guidance, a reminder of the critical importance of real connection in our physical lives, not just online. Orders of the Connected Species by Professor Mark Williams are now available at all good bookstores, in-store and online. Hard copies are available in 2023, again at all good bookshops and online. If anything discussed in this podcast has caused you concern or distress, contact your general practitioner or health provider. To locate a psychologist in your area, call the Australian Psychological Society and locate Find a Psychologist service on 1800 397 or visit www.findapsychologist.org.au. If you or someone you know is in crisis, Lifeline is available 24-7 on 13 11 14 and Kids Helpline, again 24-7 on 1800 1800 and both are free of charge. To find out more about me, please visit my website, dramandaferguson.com.au. You can find the link in my show notes. The opinions expressed by guests in these podcasts aren't necessarily shared by me.